2: Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. I'm sitting here with Chief Pineapple Dodger. It's your new title, Thea. It's me. Thea Letterdootse. <laughs> Thea, hello. <laughs> uh, there has been, since our last Hawaiian based conversation, Development. two developments, I yeah. think. Yeah. Irina Dumitrescu, off air, yeah. confessed to being a Really, team Hawaiian, pi- team Hawaiian pizza, yeah. which was the only thing that was lacking. I think I'm in, not. In, I'm
3: not going to hold it against.
2: Fine. Her. I like. It makes me like her more. <laughs> and you've actually commissioned a piece on the back of it.
3: On tiki, yeah. Yeah. The troubled history of tiki. So, when you said because you asked what tiki was. Yeah. And... When you
2: said it, I thought sort of I don't. I didn't really know what it was.
3: Well, and then and then someone who, whose name will, shall we keep it a mystery for yeah, now? Yeah. An a eminent listener. historian, a listener. Yeah. Approached me off the back of your question and my inadequate answer. I think. To say that some 2,000 words should cover it.
2: (laughs) So we are going to get a history of tiki, which is a sort of cheapening of Hawaiian culture uh, appropriation.
3: And undergoing a a resurgence at the moment.
2: Really, yeah. Yeah. So we're going to get a pizza on that. Mm. So people, you know, that's that's creative commissioning at its best, isn't it? (laughs) Our weird obsession with Hawaiian pizza's finally... Yielded fruit. Yeah. (laughs)
3: <laughs> well, sorry um, i enjoyed that far no, too much I know, I know. embarrassing i was gonna let Apologies. the si-
2: i was gonna let the silence linger but i will <laughs> uh if you want to subscribe to the tls here's a special offer for you if you live in the usa or canada or hawaii for that matter go to podcast.the-tls.com if you live anywhere else including the uk then go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod 19 This week the theme of the paper is gender and we start with a new biography of one of the 20th century's most iconic feminists, Susan Sontag. According to Elaine Showalter she was avid, ardent, driven, generous, narcissistic, Olympian, obtuse, maddening, sometimes lovable but not very likeable. So we thought we'd better ask Elaine to fill in the picture some more. I wonder how many of those adjectives might be used to describe the hero of the French Revolution, Maximilien Robespierre. There's a new biography of him out in French, subtitled L'Homme qui nous divise le plus. How's that? Is it all right. <laughs> you should have just kept I going. know, I know. I've got no faith in my pronunciation abilities. Anyway, Patrice Igonet will try to reconcile the contrasts. Plus, the Downton Abbey film is out, and for reasons which I can't quite now recall we asked A.N. Wilson to review it along with the new edition of the Almanac de Gotha. It's a festival of poshness and he'll be in the studio later to explain it all to us.
3: Susan Sontag is perhaps one of the small number of people to whom the word icon can be justifiably, usefully applied. In part because, after breakthrough and era-defining essays in the 60s and 70s, notes on camp for instance, and the third world of women, she became a cultural fixture instantly recognisable and venerated, even by those who had never read a single one of her generally provocative sentences. Sontag became a symbol, a representative for a certain type of intellectual, the liberal political feminist who told us we'd been looking at everything wrong or just not hard enough. She was an unprecedented cultural figure, in the words now of her official biographer Benjamin Moser, who combined the mind of a European philosopher and the looks of a musketeer. The androgynous shirts or polo necks, the shock of white hair against the black. Everyone knows Susan Sontag. Or do they? Because, of course, the other thing about the icon word is that it obscures myriad realities. And it's ironic that this writer who repeatedly warned against mystification of elaborations and structures that distract us from seeing the thing for the thing that it is and does, should herself have become enraptured by the myth that surrounded her. Her lover, the photographer Annie Leibovitz, described herself as feeling honoured by their relationship. I felt like a person who is taking care of a great monument. And Sontag herself seems to have agreed. By the end of her life, she died of blood cancer in 2004 at the age of 71. It sounds like, to put it bluntly, she was pretty hard to be around. Elaine Showalter, who has reviewed Benjamin Moses' long and eagerly awaited Sontag A Life, joins us now to help us lift the veil. Elaine, hello. Hi. Elaine, you you mentioned an essay from 2014 by uh, Benjamin Moser in which he said a biography is not a life but a life story. A biographer knows that whatever he can tell about the subject is only a small selection that fits a narrative chosen according to his own tastes and interests. So what what story does Moser want
4: to tell here? I think the story that he's decided to tell, and it's a controversial take on, on, on Sontag's life, is the story of a gay woman who hated her own homosexuality, could never come to terms with it, never acknowledge it, and with that at the center developed a whole pattern of kind of dishonesty and self-denial that that was very much at odds with the public stance and the kind of high morality that she came to represent. And that's his take on her. And it is a controversial take.
3: It's controversial, but it's, I mean, it's appealing in a sense, because there's another kind of central irony of Sontag's story, which seems to be that, you know, for someone so intent on finding an erotics of art and sensuous pleasure in art, she she didn't feel very comfortable with her own sexuality, obviously.
4: Absolutely, certainly with her own body, and can make distinction between the body and sexuality, or if they're the same. He talks often about how she denies that she has a body. It's not even body hatred or body dysmorphia, but she just hates she has a body. And the details in the biography are absolutely fascinating, sometimes shocking, about the degree to which... She was able to ignore her body and for example when she was pregnant she never went to see a doctor she was astonished when she went into labor she had no idea that this is going to happen and there are all kinds of episodes like that so really very profound denial of uh, of of an embodied self
2: so would she have hated this thesis her life being reduced to a shame over her own sexuality presumably the same pathology that created that would reject this as an argument
4: i think she would i think she would um i think she would be very shocked i mean i think there's a very um funny detail at the end of the book uh, Moser is talking about her funeral in paris which was a very tiny rather sad gathering of uh, of friends all flown over uh, uh, courtesy of annie leibovitz who was subsidizing her to the very end, but a tiny little funeral, it says Sontag herself would have preferred everyone in the streets throwing flowers (laughs) at her funeral procession, so that her self-image, you know, as a great culture heroine never subsided, and I think this biography, which is fascinatingly conflicted about Sontag and her legacy would would be a shock.
3: Um, okay, well let's let's take some steps back from the funeral to the very beginning, uh, and just take in her life briefly. I mean, what kind of what kind of upbringing did she have? How do we how do we how do we account for the kind of quite extreme precociousness that was clear from from very early on?
4: Well, it's hard to know where it came from. I mean, you know, there, there doesn't seem to be any genetic pattern mm-hmm. or any legacy here. She's just one of those. Um, people who was born with incredible intellectual drive and in an environment that shouldn't necessarily have contributed to her development, but from almost from birth. She saw herself as an exception. She was a voracious reader. She read very early. She hated being a child. She talks about this long imprisonment, my childhood. She only wanted to get out of it. And she was intensely alienated from her environment, which is to say her American Um, first in Tucson, Arizona, and then in suburban L.A. in the San Fernando Valley. And she's born the same year I mentioned as Philip Roth, but whereas Roth, from the very beginning, comes to see what could be seen as the very mundane circumstances of his childhood and growing up in Newark, New Jersey. He sees that as his doné. You know, that's his gift as an artist. And he can work with that for the rest of his life. But Sontag never nothing American was worth writing about, thinking about, talking about. She was bent on getting to Europe. It's sort of a Chekhovian thing, you know, Paris, 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 from the very beginning.
3: Well, tell us about Paris, 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 then. What changed?
4: Well, she does finally, by a quite circuitous route, she has to go through a marriage in order to get there. Surprisingly, marries almost immediately, uh, the first kind of reasonable suitor that she has, a professor at the University of Chicago, where she went as a very, very young woman of 16, 17, and she marries him almost immediately. And it's almost, she gets married almost in order to be able to leave. Um, And the marriage lasted for a couple of years, surprisingly, because she was not contented with it for a long time. But she got offered a fellowship um, at Oxford. And she took advantage of it. He decided he didn't want to come with her. She went alone, stayed at Oxford for a term, boring Oxford, as she said, and then she just high-footed it to Paris, and that was it. She got to Paris. She found her milieu. She found her tribe um, of existentialists, of bohemians, um, uh, of artists, and that was an identity she had been seeking Consciously, all her life.
2: There's a line in in the Moser biography where it says that she had no real lineage, and you sort of you describe her as a sort of sense of sort of coriolanus figure who sort of creates herself. Yeah. Do you kind of feel I've a this from you. You feel that that does the service to strong, brilliant intellectual women who went before her. Do, did she ever no, see well, it? Did you see? Did she ever see herself in that line? Do you think?
4: Well, I think she did, and I think this is where I would take issue with Moser's. Concept. I mean, and I think he, you know, he said in that 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 interview or that article in the New Yorker, he says every every biography. It's not a life; it's a life story. And he comes very forceful about that. This is a life story. It's his particular take, and absolutely right. And I think you know, it's really interesting and exciting can be described and evaluated. But I don't think it is the only take. And I think that to see her as a kind of essentially gay figure ignores the other side of her identity, the, the the feminist heritage, which she was very aware of, very interested in, and where there are many precedents um, for the kind of figure that she was in intellectual life. And she knows a lot about them. I mean, I would compare her to Simone de Beauvoir, it's the most immediate um, model. And she certainly knew about Beauvoir, uh, and, and, and Beauvoir is a very interesting, I think, an apropos model of the kind of the woman of genius, um, who who is definitely a rebel, definitely a radical, Beauvoir also bisexual, um, all kinds of similarities. So I, I think that Moses' take, he certainly justifies it, it makes good sense, makes a great narrative, but I don't think it's the only way you can look at Sontag. Is it the fact that she
3: didn't really take a stance during, you know, the AIDS crisis or or well, she didn't come out of the closet when so many people wanted to. Is that, is that the main thing that Moses is talking about when he says um, disappointment with her is a, is a prominent theme?
4: Well, I think there are two ways you could see that. The first is political, and there certainly was a very profound um, and growing disappointment and, and anger with Sondag, who was a very, very prominent figure in the 80s, who would not step forward, would not identify herself as gay and and be a kind of leader and a model for a struggle where homosexuality was still a stigma, where AIDS was very much a stigma. So there was a great deal of anger and, and it's very sad in, in the biography, instances of people really pleading with her, both men and women pleading with her to come forward. And she not only refused to do it, but indeed seems to have denied it to herself. So there's that and the the personal extension of that that Annie Leibovitz, who was her last lover and the longest affair of her life, and who was supporting her in the most incredible renaissance way for the last years of her life. And she will not admit publicly that they're lovers. Um, So on the personal level, the political level, there seems to be a real betrayal that that moser is attuned to and i think that's a
2: very legitimate case there's a a quote from leibovitz that thea mentioned that it was like taking care of a great monument and and you talked about about susan sometimes wanting herself to have a sort of funeral of people in mass mourning i'm just wondering how significant a figure is she now when you strip away the sexual politics you strip away almost the look and and some of the some of the surrounding noise. What, what are we left with? What is the monument that we're talking about here?
4: Well, I'm, I'm not sure. And it's one of the things I say in the review. I mean, I think Moser is very tough and unsparing. And that's one of the things that makes the biography so exciting. But I felt as I was reading it that I was learning things about Sontag that for me really undermined her monumental status. Um, I'm not a total partisan, you know, or or certainly disciple of Sontag's, but there were things that I admired very much. And in the biography, bit by bit, something of their prestige is stripped away with all kinds of details. And it's hard at the end, for me anyway, not to feel that she has been diminished in a certain way. Now, I know uh, uh, this is very controversial, and many people feel that Sontag still is one of the great thinkers. Of the 20th century and a great monumental figure, but for me, the message of the this biography is a kind of disillusionment on a number of different levels, did, including mine as a reader. Did you
2: know her, Elaine?
4: I met her once. I met her. I mean, probably you know, just about everybody who was hanging around <laughs> New York at that time. Met her. I met her at a at a party in New York. Um, it was. Um, a party in honor of Joyce Carol Oates, one, uh, her, her anniversary. And all I really remember about, about her was that we had a conversation, and she argued with me quite forcefully. I argue is too strong a, ter- a term. She, you know, instructed me about how she would never own a television set, would <laughs> never have one in her life. Absolutely deplored television, thought it would. And I thought, this is a woman who presents herself as you know, a sage of popular culture, that this is what she brings to the table. I thought this is grotesque well, in- that interesting, you could put yourself forward and not have a television. Interesting show. as
3: well that that's become almost a cliche thing to say in itself. To, that you know, oh, I don't, I don't have a television. I don't, I don't watch television. But is exactly as you said, you're kind of you're cutting yourself off.
4: Yes. I mean, I just think intellectually, we're not talking about you know whether or not you 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 like it or you're a fan or you're binge watching. I mean, but just if you pretend to be any kind of um, speaker or interpreter of popular culture, mass culture, and you don't have a television set, <laughs> what it, this it just seemed totally insane to me. So I was pretty outraged, but. But I kept mom. I mean, she's pretty intimidating.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I wonder, and maybe this is a kind of a final point. I wonder if, you know, in light of all of this, it seems kind of surprising. You know, you're talking about we're all talking about her as this indomitable, this massive cultural figure. Is it surprising that she considered herself a novelist foremost?
4: Well, it is. She had this idea that that was she was truly a novelist. The essays were just some kind of an accident and a lead-up, and she wasn't really represented in them. Jeff Dyer, in one of his books, says very interestingly that this is a completely false distinction between the fiction and the nonfiction. He says, they're all books you're writing. Um, and And he holds up Sontag as an example of somebody who insisted on this dichotomy. I am not a huge fan of her novels. I think some of the short stories or short pieces are quite wonderful, and that was a she was good in that mode. And yet, in the book, Moser brings out points about some of them that, that also undermine some of that fiction as well. I don't think she had the capacity of empathy, or something else Moser mentions about it, the capacity to really understand other people that you really have to have yeah. to be a great novelist. Her two novels are both historical novels. I mean, she can't really deal with contemporary figures. or I'm sorry, there are other novels, but the the late ones that had some success are both historical novels. And they are about women, but to me, not convincing women.
2: The reason I like this piece so much and talking to you, Elaine, is that there's too much in the world of sort of unquestioning fandom, particularly Mm. for monumental figures. And I don't think it does them any service in the end. We have to keep sceptical, don't we, that these people of flesh and blood make mistakes are who they
4: are. I I absolutely think so. And I think it's very touching that Annie Leibovitz says, I'm supporting, I have the privilege of supporting a great monument. But that is also, in a way, a very comic line. And I think um, from a larger perspective, you have to see that there is is comedy as well as drama and tragedy in Sontag's life.
2: Elaine, thank you very much for talking to us about it now.
4: Thanks.
2: Um, Speaking of... I suppose, political thinking. Harvard University Press have this message for you. The cosmopolitan political tradition in Western thought... Which we've kind of been talking about there, I think. It begins with the Greek cynic Diogenes, who, when asked where he came from, responded that he was a citizen of the world. Rather than declaring his lineage, city, social, class, or gender, he defined himself as a human being, implicitly asserting the equal worth of all human beings. And that's the subject of the cosmopolitan tradition, out now published by Harvard University Press, by preeminent philosopher Martha Nussbaum. She pursues this noble but flawed vision of world citizenship as it finds expression in Figures of Greco-Roman antiquity, Hugo Grotius in the 17th century, Adam Smith during the 18th, and various contemporary thinkers. The insight that politics ought to treat human beings both as equal to each other and as having a worth beyond price is responsible for much that is fine in the modern Western political imagination. You might say it's also under attack continually as we speak. While the cosmopolitan tradition extends Nussbaum's work, urging us to focus on the humanity we share rather and all that divides us. Here, here to that, you can order your copy of the cosmopolitan tradition with 20% discount by emailing info at harvardup.co.uk. That's info at harvardup.co.uk and quoting nussbaum TLS before the 31st of October.
1: Ready to pop the question?
2: The question, who was Robespierre, is apparently not a straightforward one, hero or monster, a tyrant or symbol of incorruptibility. Marcel Gaucher's new biography attempts to go beyond such binary questions, and Patrice Higonet has been examining the result. It means considering the question of just how revolutionary was Robespierre's actual philosophy, especially at the beginning. He was a liberal in support of a free press, the rights of people to own their own property, the rule of law. And yet this was a man who has become, to some, the very embodiment of the terror, unleashing the unremitting violence of the revolution after the fall of the French monarchy. So clearly a figure worth exploring some more. Patrice Higginet joins Thea and me now. Patrice, hello. Hello. Um, How would you summarise the career, I suppose, of Rosebud to an English audience? What do you think we collectively should think about him when we hear the name?
5: thinking about the very broad pictures of what Americans at the same time, at the end of the 18th century, and the English and the French thought about what an ideal society would be like. One of the interesting aspects of Robespierre's personality is that he was very hostile to the English Constitution and even to the drift of the American Constitution. And that was because for him, the idea of an ideal society, and that's really the great theme of his whole life, was individuals who were realizing themselves. That is, he described himself as an individualist. And he was in favor of freedom of association, freedom of speech, freedom of electoral rights, and all the rest of it. So he wants to have an individual... He never got around to thinking much about women, okay, but, um, uh, that for men, in any case, we're going to realize their individual becoming, their inner selves, in a collective frame. It's the reverse of what the reality of English life is like. It's the reverse, also, of uh, the Federalist Papers of Madison, which are exactly contemporary to this. And it's really too bad that Robespierre did not, as far as I know, (laughs) ever read the Federalist Papers. But the basic idea about self-fulfillment in Madison, in the Federalist Papers, is that a republic is possible not just in a small society, a small country, as Rousseau thought. It is going to be realized in a great republic, because in a great republic, individual strangeness, bizarrely uh, uh, particularisms would cancel each other out, and it's still kind of the American way. That is, you have a very large republic, people have different opinions, and out of not the clash, but the coming together of these different opinions comes a collective will, which is uh, 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 patriotism, uh, true patriotism, and true understanding of the concessions that uh, all individual citizens have to make to one another.
2: Yet, Rose to, to many, is known as the opposite of that, because of he's considered part of an authoritarian state, which is not respecting okay. the rights of individuals.
5: Right. Uh, absolutely right. <laughs> Except that he was determined, he was convinced that it could be done. And that's why he thought that the French Republic and the the sequence of, of politics that he had seen from 1789, for him, proved that it could be done, that individuals would realize themselves completely in a national will. There would be, of course, a discussion. But once the discussion had gone on, he says that from time to time, le peuple could make mistakes, but the duty of the legislator was to prove to the public that they were making a mistake, and then a collective national will would emerge. And so then, when that did not happen, he became quite obsessed about plots, because he thought that, since I'm saying something which is manifestly true, and people are not buying it, then they must be conspirators. There's a, a frame of mind which is very clearly described in the book there that I reviewed about the unicity of French life, the unicity of a, of a national will, and what is called, it's in the debate between the liberty of the ancients and the liberty of the moderns. Okay, so you can argue that in the ancients, Leonidas sacrificing himself at Thermopylae In all of history, there's tension between individual rights and collective rights. But anyway, the way that the French and Robespierre thought about it was that in ancient life, in the old regime, there was a collective will, but it did not represent individual becoming. And that was what the French Revolution had done. It had gotten rid of the old regime, rid of hierarchy, rid of corporations, and oddly enough, what we think of as uh, when Marx said that the Le Chapelier Law, which made of uh, labor a commodity that every individual sold and bought and sold, for Marx that was the epitome of a horrible capitalist society, what we today would call predatory capitalism. Okay. So the ancients, in Robespierre's mind, were collectivists. I mean, it's exactly the reverse of what is assumed about how Robespierre thinks. So he thought that the ancients put collective will in front of everything. He said that what the French Revolution had done was to create the liberty of the moderns, individualism. But that isn't true, is it?
2: I mean, that that doesn't seem to bear connection to reality, or does it?
5: That is our historical experience. That did not work out. Okay, (laughs) But the point is that Robespierre was convinced that individualism... right of every, again, man, not woman, okay, had civic rights, and they even had a kind of social rights. And they were, they had a right to the, what he called the zèle compatissant. That is, we have to, every individual has to be completely aware of the unhappiness of others. And there was, in Jacobinism, there was a fait du malheur. That is, people who are unfortunate and who deserve the help of people who are rich and fortunate. So what Robespierre is very hostile, and he's not hostile to rich people. He says that that's part of life. But what he says is that what we would call halcy capitalism was immoral. So there's a a responsibility of, uh, well, if you go to a, a state school, the child will learn not to detest people who are richer than he is. And the rich children will understand that the poor children have rights. And that kind of, that's kind of the way that we think what a public school should be like. It should encompass rich and poor, fortunate and not, and it will work, okay? And that's what Robespierre thought would happen.
3: At what moment did he realize? Once, was it a sort of a sudden moment of realisation that that wasn't going to be the case? And basically what I'm asking is how does a pacifist, you describe him as a model liberal legislator, how does such a man become an insurgent who is executed?
5: The idea, it's very interesting, and that's one of the points that the author of this book made, which is really very interesting, which is in his last great speech on the eighth Thermidor, Robespierre said that it was very important for the Republic to be pacifistic and prosperous, and that he saw that the effect of a war had been uh, disastrous. And he said, if we don't do anything about it, it's a disaster that's going to go on for two centuries. I mean, it really is very prophetic. And in 1791-92, he was one of the very few people who were hostile to a declaration of war. He was pacifistic, and then what he thought in his mind's eye, well, the French have voted to declare war, on, at first on pressure in Austria, and then in January of the following year on England, he thought that. Well, we find ourselves in this state of war. I was against being in the state of war, but now since we're in a state of war with monarchies and selfish, uh, arrogant nobles uh, or corrupt English parliamentary representatives who are not really representatives, now we have no choice for the sake of the Republic, for the sake for the sake of perpetual pacifism. We have to have a war. That's the the, the argument. Is that the, the French Revolution, which was about the harmony of individuals and the collective good, and then of the French collective good with the collective good of all of Europe, he didn't think he didn't think much about women, and he did not think much about the rest of the world
2: we are going to have to leave it there patrice but it, what strikes me okay. listening to you and, and reading this is it's a it's a very modern sensibility a, a man very of, modern. a man of contradiction the man of uh, one level idealism and then when that idealism gets compromised are willing to go all in to, to to see the result and that sort of conflict between ideal and reality and the musing on it feels like you know a statement of the modern condition
5: he thought and everybody thought they understood rightly that the french revolution and the declaration of the rights of man and the fall of the bastille was the beginning of a new age and that somehow uh, all of the uh, horrible things of the past would vanish and he he thought that about his private life and and we have uh, in our own sensibility We've got Boris Johnson, we've got Donald Trump. Everything seems to be going wrong and everything seems to be kind of crazy. And so we have the feeling that somehow we're in a state where confusion is the natural situation of of citizens of goodwill. In, in
3: other words, history politicians modern politicians need to start reading history a bit with a bit more uh focus <laughs>
5: <laughs> yes i don't think that donald trump is really ever going to understand. no i can't see i can't <laughs> see
3: him picking up a, a copy of mc <laughs> bush's not, book yeah, yeah i think
5: just, read, right.
2: just reading a book would be a, would, would be a good start uh, patrice thank you very much indeed okay Bye. um, thank you it does strike me listening to to that that this sort of you know, there's there's echoes of all sorts of people. You know, there's mm. this sort of Corbynism uh, argument, someone who has these very clear ideals, and then how do those ideals manifest itself into practical reality? That's been a that's been a kind of the issue, central issue of the left if movements forever. That you have yeah. ideals and reality is grubby, and how do you preserve the ideals while still getting things done in yeah, the real and world? And how long
3: do you wait for things to change? And
2: yeah, I mean, I hope it's not too much of a model for us because you know, <laughs> we didn't get much into the terror, but you know. <laughs> The more I read about the French Revolution, some
3: fifteen thousand people tried on yeah. put on trial and executed. Was
2: yeah. it? Yeah. Let's. we didn't get to Is the that still Jean. to come. <laughs> well, we are talking about this, and the reason I think Patrice mentioned this, we're talking, we're recording this, and Elaine also kind of wanted to talk to us about this off air. You know, as the Supreme Court rules against Boris Johnson and says that people have been breaking the law in a breathtaking fashion, and Donald Trump may be impeached. There's now return talk of him being impeached and. America it does feel that structures are, are wobbling doesn't mm-hmm. it and so it's not entirely crazy although we hope the, the end is different to, to, to... <laughs> the
3: guillotine doesn't make a comeback
2: yeah but you know people like Robespierre are it's a, are modern characters aren't they
3: they are yeah in in very in very many unsettling ways yeah
2: that's very true It seems unlikely that Robespierre would enjoy Downton Abbey, but you never know. As Andrew Wilson notes in this week's TLS, the popularity of the show, and now the film, which has made more than £30 million in its first weekend, is a signal that the old world is finally dead. The aristocracy is now seen as something to be stared at, even celebrated, a tourist attraction notable for its quaintness, its Britishness. So, does that make for a good film? And just how large does the aristocracy loom in real life? In what can only be described as a very tierless move, we also asked Andrew to look at the Bible of European Aristocracy, The Almanac de Gotha, 2019, a challenge which he, with the insouciance of a seasoned hack, accepted with aplomb. He's now here to report back. Andrew, hello. Hello. Am I allowed to call
6: you a seasoned hack? Yes, was, uh, I love being both. <laughs> yeah. uh, tart would be another. A tart element. seasoned. <laughs> oh, yes. But anyway,
2: hack. hack. Tart as noun, not adjective. Then no, well, also, you, it's
6: politically incorrect. So yeah. let's say, ha- let's say hack. We'll say
2: hack. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about. You mentioned throughout your lovely piece the fantasy behind Downton Abbey. What is the fantasy? Well, it's
6: all fantasy. I mean, you, you mentioned Robespierre, but in a way, you could say that Julian Fellows, who I imagine would not like Robespierre in real life, <laughs> no. is doing Robespierre's work for him because he's actually hammering what's last left, what's left of the aristocracy, into the ground and making it into a kind of tourist attraction.
2: Do you think that is hammering it into the ground, or is it sort of celebrating it as a, as a sort of old way of life?
6: Well, the thing is, I mean, if you are a fan of this film, and as you've said, it's an amazingly popular it's film. incredibly Already popular. it's taken North America, Canada, and the United States by storm. I expect it will be popular here, too. I saw it in the Camden Odeon, which is perhaps rather a left-wing <laughs> den. Well, and what and was I it was like? was the only person <laughs> in no! on the opening night. Oh, no! But, um, I think most people will enjoy this film, and it's it's fairly schmutzy and um, sentimental, but the thing is it if you're asking the question, "What is the aristocracy for?" the answer is to be found in the almanac de Joseph. Namely, they were the ruling classes of Europe until the French Revolution, and quite a lot of them, and the royal families, up to the First World War.
2: And you don't get a sense of that. In the,
6: th- these are not no these sense. are not powerful people. No, they're not. Even though this is meant to be Downton Abbey is meant to be the tail end of when they were powerful, and in a place like Downton Abbey, you would, in fact, have met. The Prime Minister or the Home Secretary or the French President or somebody like that talking politics, as as you do in The Remains of the Day, for example. Yeah. But, but here, there's no politics.
3: But there's a. Is, is, am I right in thinking there's a royal visit? Is oh, is this sort yeah. of the centre of the. Well, there the you center. are. You see,
6: I mean, the royal family come into this category of basically people who are just a tourist attraction now, <laughs> rather than having any political function.
2: Is but, that true, Andrew? Just to allow me to indulge a, a thing that sends me potty in this country. This farce that the Queen is not political and the Queen must be preserved from politics at all. Well, of course, a, her whole function is political. Exactly, it's a constitutional right. And yet she is the head of state. And, and no but I mean, to does, talk
6: about But, I mean, we mustn't talk about her. But, uh, you Why know, not? she's meant to be the head of state. But during the possibly most extreme crisis constitutionally we've had since 1832, she doesn't appear to be doing anything to her. No, all and people. also
2: this notion that you're not allowed to... You know, she talks to the Prime Minister once a week. We're never allowed to know what they talk about. Why not? Exactly. Why not? And yet, all of the royal courses. I know this from experience. If you even mention the Queen and her, don't politicise the Queen. Don't politicise the Queen. And they say, she,
6: don't drag her into politics. Yeah, she's well,
2: she's the centrepiece of all <laughs> political.
6: She's system. the head of state. Please don't drag her into politics.
2: Yeah, I just, I just. <laughs> it's anyway. Like saying,
6: you know, she's the editor of Vogue. Don't drag her into the fashion world. <laughs>
2: exactly. Exactly. And yet, it's it's part of our weird. And this comes back to Downton Abbey. We, they sort of crook the need to tradition, but without ever wanting to to, to engage in in reality. It's,
6: it's reality. Devoid of any reality, this, uh, because you have the house. The, I mean, we've all been around England and seen these beautiful houses. Just as, I mean, I make a comparison in the piece I've written between Toral Even Song and this. Uh, people love walking around cathedrals and they love turning on Radio 3 and listening to Toral Evensong Song. That's because they don't believe, it's not because they do believe. Yeah, because it's, it's Real believers a... would be shocked by walking around Canterbury Cathedral now, or by, above all, Norwich Cathedral, where there's a sort of heritage dirty. Is Hell Yeah, have you Helter seen
2: Helter that? Schulten. Yeah, look, yeah, Hell So, in some ways, the cathedral marks the grave of religion. religion. Religion rather than celebrate. And and,
6: uh, and Fellows' Downton Abbey marks the end, absolute finishing post of the aristocracy.
2: Does it need to be authentic? I mean, because at some level this is just. Oh, no, it needs not to be. That's the point. Yeah, so if this were authentic, it would be dreadfully dull.
6: It would either be very dull or it would be shocking because we would be reminded of the fact, A, that. The real aristocracy, the whole point of it, was that it was exclusive. It, it, it didn't allow people like you and me, Stig, to be wandering about it. Maybe Theo. Theo so well, would none of the obviously. <laughs> She's uh, European, European, though, isn't? Yeah, not European. you a bit
3: modest about But none of the plot lines would, would, make, would be even remotely possible. None. Not even the walking in the front door of the house, which I think is a particularly delightful detail. Well, I mean, the <laughs> servants
6: all just walk in and out of the front door. <laughs> and then at the end, uh, Carson, the butler is the only person who has any sense of these things... Um, tries to walk out of the front door and his wife says don't you think uh, we're being a bit cheeky or something and there's nobody else there as it happens and he says oh just this once I think we could do it so that's a
3: little meta nod going on the meta
6: nod is going on but I mean (laughs) uh, does that redeem the film the meta (laughs) nod is (laughs) is identified I think meta nod is uh, it'll be meta nod part two The next.
2: (laughs) (laughs) have you seen Gosford Park yes I have so Julian Fellows wrote Gosford Park which and, you know, another upstairs, downstairs film. Robert Altman directs that film. That's a serious film to a certain extent, isn't it?
6: It was a serious film. It was, uh, like most of Altman's work, work, it's full of ironies. It's a kind of self-parody stuff. It's aware of its being a parody of the old country house mystery, for a start, and they made Stephen Fry into the detective, oh, that's who, right. uh, who is ludicrous, but intentionally ludicrous, I would imagine. Um, and the murder is itself ludicrous. But in that, there are lots of sort of, I would imagine, deliberate... Um, anachronisms they, they all drink cocktails before dinner which you didn't in a country house for instance you just stood really? around
2: hang it, on a second we need to hang on PG Woodhouse there's, con, there's always uh, martinis before before dinner uh,
6: in his flat but I mean Jeeves himself would not countenance a, a cocktail in the country house really
2: are you sure about that? I've got a feeling... Well, I've there, got a feeling there was
6: actually, me. in your very paper before you arrived, there was a correspondence <laughs> about this. Oh, really? <laughs> somebody wrote a review, I remember, about Gosford <laughs> Park, and there was a question of whether you, Because one of the details in Gosford Park is that the bloody Mary gets smashed. Oh. and the question is, when did the Bloody Mary arrive in England? And also, <laughs> would you have drunk one in <laughs> polite people, society? <laughs> people are obsessed
2: with this, isn't it? Is, is it kind of a patho- it's kind of a societal pathology that we do want these country houses we to want, exist, don't they? we? We want them, like...
6: them to exist, but we wouldn't like to be there ourselves, because they'd be looking down their noses at us. And
2: they'd actually be—they'd have stitched up the country. They'll have—they'll they'll be running things to their well, own the benefit. Well, the whole
6: point of them is that they were for people who had stitched up the country and were. When they weren't shooting and looking at their great artworks and having grand dinners, they were running the country. Yeah. Um, th- that's that's what justifies the almanac de Gota and doesn't justify the English country house <laughs> without an aristocrat to, to live in it.
2: Let's talk about the almanac de Gota because I kind of knew what it was, but not vastly. What, what, what's its and purpose?
6: Of it, most of us only know about it was in the Four Quartets, T.S. Eliot imagines all the of humanity in the past being drifting away like an underground train, yeah. and, and among the other people, the director of Directors and the Almanac to Jota going into the dark.
2: Yeah, and Proust mentions it as well.
6: And Proust is obsessed by it, of course, because most of Proust's friends either were in it or wish they were in it, <laughs> and most of the characters he writes about are the sort of people who are in it, i.e., Not people like the English aristocracy, whose ancestry might only go back two or three generations before you come to a bank manager or a rich lawyer or something. God forbid. God forbid. (laughs) I mean, you remember the old ladies in Proust, um, aristocratic old ladies, when a member of the French royal family comes into the room, they turn their backs. Because the French royal family had married into trade. With yeah. the Medici- when they married the Medici. Um, and Swan is never truly well. Swan, and Swan, and Swan is, is
2: friends with the Prince Regent, isn't
6: Swan, he? Swan is friends with... Well, uh, he, he's friends with the Prince of Wales. That's Prince of Wales, yeah. um, But, I mean, he he's the sort of clever person that
2: you'd have as a court jester if you were proper aristocrat.
6: I mean, not that not as a jester, but, uh, but, but as a man at your dinner table, because he's cultivated and funny.
2: So it? what's the point of it now? It's 2019... Andrew, uh, this is a this book is effectively. Do you know what it reminded me of? A wisdom for posh people.
6: It's wisdom of the posh. Yeah, Uh, it's a strange book because you open it and the first stuff is all the papal court and all the cardinals, they're all still there and they're still doing what they were doing in the time of the Medici. I mean, i.e. they are exercising power over the church. Then you turn to the royal families, well, most of those are extinct. And the ones who aren't extinct, like the Danish or the British ones, uh, don't apparently have very much to do. We've already discussed the... uh, (laughs) Don't get me started ..the head of state. Um, (laughs) Won't get you started. But um, then you turn to all these great families whom we come across in our history books who apparently... You know, we know they're still there. There was a case in the paper the other day of the the former German emperors, the Hohenzollerns, suing the German government for all their palaces and treasures to get them back out of the galleries. They're still there, and they're still, many of them, extremely rich, but, of course, they have no political power or function. But they have history. They have history, and it's real history. It goes right
2: back. Not like us, because you use a phrase here which I'm considering putting on a mug or T-shirt. Britain... Is an archipelago of parvenus. <laughs>
6: <laughs> I said that's what somebody like Proust would think yeah, we yeah. were. And uh, we are, of course, because if you look at the even the sort of grand families like the Marquises of Salisbury, for instance, who provided the uh, greatest Victorian Prime Minister, who provided Queen Elizabeth the first minister, it, it, it pretty soon cascades down into being yeoman stock uh, by the late Middle Ages. Whereas um, <laughs> Is that, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Actually? good thing, in my view. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's why it's why ours survived. Our so-called aristocracy survived because you could anyone can join the aristocracy witness all the Tony Blair appointments. So it's the,
3: constantly refreshed rather than being completely sealed whereas
6: off. Whereas what really did for the French ones in the time of our Robespierre uh, was that it was completely sealed off, and you couldn't you couldn't get on in France unless you belonged to the aristocracy, and in, indeed in Russia you couldn't go to a university unless you were. Uh, is technically an
2: aristocrat. So, would Ro- Ro- has won in a way? Because if the aristocracy survives, it's sort of pastiche, it's fodder for Sunday evening TV, it's cartoon, it's, it's theme needed. park. It's so. It's in some ways, Robespierre Ro- 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 would, would be pleased. He
6: would be delighted if he saw Downton Abbey. He'd rub <laughs> his hands and think, "This is what <laughs> I've been fighting for." If I knew I could do it by showing down to I wouldn't have chopped anybody's head. Yeah, exactly. No, but there, there, would been, there would
2: have been no need for the terror at all. Uh, there's another great quote in this from A. L. Rouse saying that the peak of civilization is the late Victorian country house. Is there an argument? I mean, what is
6: yes, it- Rouse,
2: who was a Marxist yeah. convert to
6: um, a kind of sentimental Toryism, he really believed that and so what's so great in a about? way he was right because if you look at them, they're objects of fantastic beauty, the houses and the parks and the way it's all done and that's what we still when we pay our money to belong to the National Trust or something, that's what we're going to see, to enjoy all that. At the same time as we've already said in this conversation there were great political conversations etc happening against this background of stupendous meals beautifully served by Carson and Mrs Patmore yeah. <laughs> type people and um the way of life, which was essentially gentle. I mean, I think that's one of the things he thought was good about it. Yes, they were killing a lot of wild animals during the afternoons before they came back for their grand dinners. But, but um, if you look look back at the times of the medieval papacy, let's say, or the pre Reformation aristocracy in England and, and the Wars of the Roses it was all very violent, yeah. whereas the country house uh, you've already mentioned P.G. Woodhouse and it's in a way just waiting for a P.G. Woodhouse story to be set in it, isn't even
2: it? though it's based, I suppose on you know the reason why I think it's so tempting now is because they don't have to work, they don't have any of the sort of pressures of modernity on them, but they are ba- they have that because of the suppression of people who are doing all the work
6: arguably yes
2: i mean uh, it must be one of the arguably, things
6: that, one of the things that fellows puts into this film is the to my mind very questionable idea that country houses still exercise a wonderful social function by providing a focus for the locality as well as lots of employment.
2: Yeah, because these are people who wouldn't be able to, they were effectively indentured a lot of these people oh, so, that, lot, yes. so they wouldn't have been free to work their lives would have been pretty brutal pretty and tough. Pe-
6: Pretty brutal, many of them. And that allows the idol... certainly the lives of the servants, the people like Carlson who are loving it, and and all that look so clean. I remember a very posh old lady who'd been alive in the 20s and 30s saying to me once, what you can't imagine is that the upper classes were so mean uh, that they never gave anywhere uh, to their servants to wash. So when some grand flunky opened the front door of a big house, all wearing sort of beautiful uniform, etc., the stink was absolutely overwhelming.
2: Because they didn't regard them as as they weren't equal, human beings, equal really. human beings, and is it? I mean, is it bad that? Because at one level, this is sort of crap Sunday evening escapist TV. Yes, but it's a sort of mini industry. The film is taking o- over the world. Does it matter that these sort of things aren't dealt with properly, or should should we stop being? Po- should I not be po-faced about it? Well, uh,
6: I'm. I'm a bit divided. I mean, I am quite po-faced about it. And it must be underlined, this is total crap. I mean, it is it is real crap, and hence its huge popularity in Canada, America, and here. Um, don't, let's, don't let's beat about the bush. It is absolute total crap, badly acted, badly written, etc. But uh, at the same time, it is purveying a sort of lie. And if one was being serious, yeah. one would want to have more books like um, The Remains of the Day in which the political involvements of the upper classes some of them are a bit dodgy as in The Remains of the Day many of them not
2: yeah.
3: And it's interesting, I don't know, you might know the answer to this I i don't. Uh, is Downton Abbey does it exist in, I don't even know if it exists in Italy or, or France, could it oh, exist, has that, it been translated, really, would it translate? Really I mean,
6: interesting question
2: yeah. I think Americans like it because they have this sort, yeah. of, slu- this sort of romantic view and of and English. And they've never had a past, yeah, yeah. So, th- so it doesn't matter if inventing one. <laughs> that's even more of an archipelago of parvenus. Yes, exactly. That's why they, that's why they love it. <laughs> the a continent it? of parvenus. Exactly.
6: Whereas you see in France, I think it's a rather dodgy area.
3: Yeah, I can't imagine it selling. I'm going to have to look that up. Do you after think this so, can you imagine
2: people I've, sitting in? I can't imagine people. I can't
3: in, really. Although my Italian grandma, she speaks very good English. Well, she's certainly used to, Contessa she can't, she can't be bothered anymore. Yeah. <laughs> oh, definitely neither of those <laughs> two, I'm, I'm afraid. Um, but she absolutely loved the uh, 1996, or whenever it was, Pride and Prejudice adaptation.
2: The t- the, the
3: but then that's just because it's a great story, so it didn't it have anything to do story. with the... But she t- loved period it's dramas. It's
6: not high aristocrat. It's not, it? no, you're right. No. So
3: it's not, it doesn't... Yeah, I can I'm going to have to look into that. I the measure
6: is people aren't doing the kind of harm that Stieg is attributing and Robespierre would, would attribute to, <laughs> the, to the Danton Abbey owning class. I think and my that would I've, be I'm Robespierre. I'm sorry to admit actually. this, because I'm a sentimentalist <laughs> myself. I, I'm sorry, I actually on the side of Stig and Robespierre there, you see. Uh, and also, but I don't think, like being. You
3: met, don't have to apologise to me, Andrew. I, I'm not. I'm not one of the Almanac de Gota kind uh, of people. Are you sure? I'm pretty sure. Be, well,
2: pretty, pretty
3: sure maybe, on maybe both sides of my family. But it is interesting,
6: you see, the in the French. And to a smaller extent, Italian story. uh, There's a lot of darkness, not just Robespierre, because there are all the revivals that you can read about in Balzac and so on when these people came back. And also what Balzac's so brilliant about is is the way that people invented. Once it had been abolished, as it had been in England several times in many ways, then you should invent these things. And all these people claiming to be peers of France in Balzac, you know, they they turn out actually just to be Napoleonic soldiers or something like but
2: maybe that. we all want to be so i mean so i'm sneering at this slightly because it's not my thing but you know i love pg woodhouse which at one level is a sentiment sentimentalization of this world yeah. henry james
6: yes i just i just
3: read um elizabeth jane howard's cazalet chronicles i know it's different i know it they're not aristocratic but there is that to me is about as close as as escapism into a country house can
6: yeah. Get. Yes, and um, if you think of the fondness that people have—I don't have it, but um, there's nothing wrong with them—that all the Anthony Trollope
2: novels yeah. set yeah. s- s- in the Zootropolis house and so on. Whereas you—you like, well, you got me reading Anthony. Well, Anthony
6: Poe is a slightly different. Uh, it's the kind of bohemian. It is, version. and
2: actually, although because I read it after we spoke, um, and there is a little bit of aristocracy, but it is much more urban, mm. much more it's bohemian. It's bars and yeah, little magazines. Yeah, it's not. On, it's it? n- it's novelists putting their. Putting their friends into their books, which yes. is a different t- sense of entitlement I mean, it struck me, it was quite an enti- it's quite an entitled book in and itself because it's people who can afford to be novelists. of course
6: And I mean, you've already mentioned one of the charms of people who live in country houses is they don't have to do anything else <laughs> except. I mean, anyway, certainly in this fantasy world, they don't have to do anything.
2: No, they just have to. I
6: mean, there's a scene in Downton where one of the daughters is saying on the telephone to her mother that she's ha- sat on various committees all week and she's d- d- given thirty five dinners and she feels absolutely exhausted. But um, you, you don't go into what is actually the function of somebody who sits in the house of lords namely to pass laws yeah. which, which will affect the rest of us
3: i wonder also whether the whether the ultimate plan with this downton abbey business uh, which it is pure business yeah. it's it's industry i wonder if the plan is business. to keep going and going to the point where these families or this family at the center of the story will have to be opening their house up to or selling chunks of it off to the national trust you know, every Thursday they'll have to open the house to visitors. Can we get that far? To, or that would no, ruin it, everything.
6: It would ruin it because you'd have to go into the, you know, the elder son being a drug addict I think, <laughs> since <laughs> all, since novels. Yeah, not, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and, would, and this
2: is a fantasy. I mean, I think there will be another one. I mean, Fellows is not going to turn off this particular gushing. I think, gushing the, tap, I think we've it. already there are hints
6: in this film. There will be a prequel.
0: Mm. Oh really? Because at so some so point, work you, I think he's safe. I think he's
6: safer working backwards after 1927. It becomes a bit dodgy. Yeah, and. You know that some of the girls and the Duchess herself, whichever she's called, du- Countess, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't really matter. Who cares? Um, <laughs> s- says, isn't is it awful of me? I rem- I, I rather liked it when this house was a field hospital in the First World War, and then someone else says, should we sell it to make it into a children's stool or a? Yeah. Uh, I think actually, if you if you took it into the real world, yeah the whole House of Cards would collapse. Yeah,
3: it might actually be something that I would
6: consider watching it if you took it forward. <laughs> well of course. You know, well, no, we're now it would be interesting, a, but it would I'm afraid yeah. demand it would
2: demand a writer rather more subtle
6: than Julian Fellows.
2: Yeah, I think there's something in that although like I said I'm a rank sentimentalist, really, and so I'm, I'm no better. I'm not, I mean, the thing is, the difference in quality, though, P.G. Woodhouse is sentimental and escapist, but it is brilliant. It is well, it's brilliantly written. I,
6: I mean, I think Woodhouse just has created a world which happens to be about upper class people, but they're all his own invented characters, aren't
2: they? Yeah, but it is sentimental in the sense that no one is particularly bad. It's Arcadian, there's a kind of... It's you know, Ar-
6: it is Arcadian, the, that's true. The problems aren't bad. It's and certainly the, Arcadian. Yeah. I, I would, if we had another seminar, oh, uh, the difference between Arcadian and sentimental can be discussed.
2: Well, I'll just leave people with the, with the mental image of you A.N. Wilson, clutching your almanac to Gotha on your own in, in Camden Cinema watching watching <laughs> Downton Abbey. Um, what a pleasant image that is. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for sending me to the film. Yeah. I, I wouldn't have seen it otherwise. was oh, a great commission. Uh, that's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to A.N. Wilson, Patrice Higunet and Elaine Showalter. Get yourself a copy of the TLS's gender issue this week, talking... About gender issues, the cover is a beautiful drawing by our cartoonist Ella Barron, which is worth the entrance fee alone. Next week, we have a film special in the paper, so no doubt we'll do something similar on the podcast. Will we cover anything as important as Downton Abbey? Come back and find out. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye.